Many of you may know Bloomberg, that is Michael Bloomberg, or Bloomberg LP, which is the company of the same name, which supplies financial data to firms around the world. However, some may not know about Bloomberg New Energy Finance. In 2009, Bloomberg LP purchased New Energy Finance, a data company focused on energy investment and carbon markets research based in the United Kingdom. And my guest on the show today was one of the original employees of New Energy Finance after having been bought by Bloomberg, was able to step out and do her PhD at the London School of Economics. Her name is Maria Carvalho, and she has a very interesting story because having been involved in startup companies, New Energy Finance, Academia, London School of Economics, and now South Pole Group, which is one of the largest climate change consulting firms in the world, she has a really interesting story to tell. I invite you to listen to, in particular, how she explains how carbon markets work around the world, what certain actors do and don't do, and how we might go forward in addressing climate change through the governance of carbon emissions. Please enjoy the show. Very happy to welcome to the show Dr. Carvalho with uh, South Pole Group, previously at London School of Economics, where she had done her PhD and postdoc, and I believe also master's. That's true. Maybe not quite in that order. So my master's sometime in 2006 on environmental policy and regulation. It happened to be the year that the Stern Review came out. And so Nicholas Stern, who was also at LSE, and a few of my professors who were also there who wrote the reviews, it ended up being just a great precipitous time to do my master's. I actually was there when the Stern Review was launched at LSE. And so it was just a funny coincidence, and I've been in climate change ever since. I actually went to do my PhD. I, I worked for a few years for New Energy Finance in their carbon markets team, which was bought by Bloomberg. Right. You were working there just before they were bought by Bloomberg? or uh, Yeah, I, I benefited from the acquisition, let's put it that way. Um, oh, that was nice. <laughs> that was very nice. So I was able to finance, a, you know, have enough for pocket money during my PhD because being, doing a PhD in London is very hard. So yeah, in right. 2010, uh, 2000, end of 2009 was the acquisition. And by October, I was act, I took some time off. And then by October, I was starting my PhD at LSE again. And yeah, I did the PhD, graduated in 2015. And then basically worked as a, both for something, a teaching course for a year called LSE 100, which was about why social science matters in the world and taking an interdisciplinary perspective on real global issues. But then I went on to actually not to do a postdoc, but to be a policy analyst at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment, the same place I did my PhD, and with the geography and environment. Ah, okay. So, so it wasn't quite considered yeah. a postdoc. Yeah, no, it was actually more, it was a non-academic position. Mm. It was more about helping with translating the academic research in policy reports that policymakers could engage with. So we really were the nexus between the academic research and the policymakers. And it 
was wonderful that way. I really had a, that nice in-between time. And actually, because I was in that role of policy translate, you'll notice uh, that with academics, whenever we write these sort of policy reports, that we'll really investigate whether policies have effects to come out with recommendations, but pretty much any one of the academic reports or really the policy reports I wrote, it had these two words like, you know, consider all these policies, but make sure you do capacity building. Consider all policies and realize that there could be transaction costs. And for me, those two key words, <laughs> I thought, you know, it's like the random error term that we realize can have actually some significant effects of whether that policy is successful or not and the, all the efforts that we're doing are successful or not. And I thought the best, I was actually looking for an opportunity to work with the private sector so I could actually understand how they implement policy. I've been doing it for about uh, over two years and just came to a point where I felt a bit uncomfortable. A lot of the policies that we're recommending is how can you structure climate policy to engage the business sector and ensure that they incorporate climate risk, but also they recognize the business opportunity. And consistently, whenever academic or policy reports talk about this, they'll always say you should have stable, long-term policies that still have some flexibility to deal with uncertainties. And policymakers shouldn't change these policies suddenly. It seems like a good piece of advice, but implementing that advice is quite challenging exactly. for a policymaker. Exactly, for policymakers, but also for businesses. Right? So businesses ask for this, but beyond that, what are the things that they need to know to implement in a policy? Why do businesses engage or not engage? And I go back and, or why do certain governments in the world who are looking at international policy, why do they engage and not engage? And I realized that I needed to actually work in the private sector where they have to respond to policies to basically manage their climate risk and also to see potential business opportunities. So so and, sort of like uh, a participant observation you jumped into. Mm -hmm. mm. Is that, I mean, that's the way I would put it, but I thought I could learn more from doing that. And so I was actually looking uh, for those opportunities and I had a couple of, um, you know, I thought I was looking for a government relations role within a private company or within an industry association. Right. But what I was actually approached by industry associations, but I felt uncomfortable with it because I felt I would be compromised. Right. And then what ended up happening was the South Pole came along and I was really surprised. Uh, they had contacted me on LinkedIn. I was surprised because I only knew South Pole as a carbon projects developer. I knew I was impressed by them because when I was working at New Energy Finance, most of the companies that did carbon project development were either bought out by banks, they were sold, or they went bankrupt. And South Pole was neither acquired and neither was bankrupt, and they seemed to be thriving in the volunteer market sector. And I had also noted about South Pole more than 10 years ago that they were a very interesting company because at the time when we were studying uh, the clean development markets, most carbon project developers would actually go after industrial gases or large-scale renewable projects, which are important in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, but not necessarily that great when it comes to reducing poverty. But South Pole was going for a lot of projects, which were small-scale, community-based, you know, cook stoves. They were doing something as simple as that. And those types of projects are notorious for having high transaction costs. Um, they also are notorious for not having the right policies in place in order to actually incentivize 
those types of projects because there's many little projects that you have to bundle together. And now the CDM has come uh, with this term program, programmatic activities. CDM, just for the audience, is what exactly? The clean development mechanism. It was the Kyoto Protocol's mechanism in which you could develop projects in developing countries. And it was a way of developing carbon projects that reduced emissions and then were certified with offsets. These offsets could then be sold to developed countries that need to reduce their own emissions. And so that was the clean development mechanism. And it was really thriving between 2006 and 2009. And then the recession hit. And then a lot of the developed countries realized they didn't need as many credits. The EUTS, which is the most major market, they had enough of their own domestic allowances to cover their compliance because emissions had gone down by so much. The difference between, since in the EUTS, it's based on setting a historical cap and then reducing it over time, and that restricts, that creates the amount of supply of credits that you have, but it's based on historical emissions and reducing from that. And what happened was the actual, because of the recession, so much industrial activity had reduced that it wasn't matching the historical trajectory. And so you just had too many allowances that were being issued because it was going with, again, how policies were set. And this was a very unforeseen circumstance that happened. And because of that, you couldn't just adjust your policy cap being like, okay, I see this recession. Let me change how many allowances I was going to send. So when you had too many allowances, in the market that EU players could use for themselves. And that actually reduced a lot of trading activity. Incidentally, at the same time of around 2009, 2010, a lot of the bottlenecks that occurred due to issuance of the CDM allowances, and these are, or CDM credits, and we call these CERs, there was about a two year gap between just basically going through the certification process and verifying it and making sure everything is in line with the principles of additionality. And additionality is about basically the idea that an offset should represent an emission reduction that goes above and beyond what would normally have happened. So an offset also does represent that this project, carbon project, would not have occurred because they didn't have enough financing, it was too expensive, and policies weren't in place to incentivize that. You prove that you've actually reduced emissions, that you avoided emissions that in other normal circumstances would have occurred. So just take a one brief moment to sum up the Kyoto Protocol and the CDM, because there's a lot of researchers and people that would say that was sort of a complete failure. But as we talked about before the we started the podcast here, you mentioned we did learn quite a bit and we're sort of standing on the shoulders of those that came before us. Um, so maybe you could just speak towards that real briefly and sum that up and what was learned and how we grew out of that process. And the lessons from the CDM are really important for what the Paris Agreement is also trying to do in terms of now also creating an incentive for countries to invest in emission reductions in other countries. This could be a lot more cost effective. But when it comes to the clean development mechanism and thinking about successes and failures, the point of the clean development mechanism was um, when the Kyoto Protocol was signed, it really the way in which developing countries would sign up is, is that if they could get access to funds or financing that would actually reduce emissions within their own country. recognizes that these countries don't have access to that finance. They don't even have access to the technologies. And it would be great if expertise from the developed world could come into these developing countries and develop projects. In a lot of ways, when you think about it, you know, a lot of developing countries may not have the most efficient technologies. And those technologies are 
what you could consider business as usual in developed countries, but they don't have it in the developing countries. So just taking what is current technologies and efficiencies and putting it into developing countries would automatically reduce emissions by a lot and it would be cheaper. Right, so on a global emissions level, it's actually a cheaper and easier win if, if it's orchestrated properly, is that correct? Exactly. It's a cheaper and easier win. It is cheaper because you're not trying to put the most, I mean, it's good to put the most innovative technologies in place. And we have seen that preferring in developing countries, you're seeing large markets for wind and solar in China and India. That's partly because of their own industrial policy. The point is, is more, the clean development mechanism was just a way in which you could create financing and an incentive for developing countries to get that investment and as a reward, proving that emission reductions occurred, that it could then go to developed countries. Because it would be more expensive, if you were to think about it this way, uh, a lot of developed countries do have efficient technologies. The cost of putting in even more efficient technology would be higher than taking the same technology that they have and taking it to developing countries that don't have as emissions as efficient technologies, doing the same thing that's in the developed world to the developing world by increased efficiencies, more low carbon technologies would have then, would reduce their emissions profile of the developing country and give them access to technologies they didn't have. So this was important and that's generally the principle. When you think about it at a global level, I mean, I always think about how do we ensure that these transactions don't increase global emissions. And this is also, again, enshrined in the Paris Agreement. The environmental integrity of the entire Paris Agreement is, is, and specifically on something called Article 6, it has mechanisms in which this kind of international carbon finance can occur. And even there, they say, in order to ensure the entire environmental integrity of the entire global climate system, these transfers should not increase overall global emissions. Now, going back to your original question on what are some of the successes of the CDM is, is that when we saw, really, it is, the CDM can't be talked without thinking about the EUTS. The EUTS was the most major buyer of CDM credits. So that's the, that's the EU emissions trading system? Exactly. So the EU emissions trading system was launched in 2005. It was meant, that was the pilot phase in 2005, 2006, and 2007. But the idea was that this system would start reducing emissions from the most carbon intensive facilities in the EU, the most large scale carbon intensive. So now it covers about 11,000 installations in the EU, 28, including Norway, Iceland, and soon to be uh, Switzerland, it's linking this year. But the idea was at that time um, that EU buyers, those who were in compliance, could use a certain percentage of, instead of having to buy EU credits to cover their emissions, they could buy CERs. And because, again, CERs would be a lot more cheaper because they were emission reductions that occurred in developing countries, the ability to reduce your carbon costs by buying CERs was very attractive. Now, just to reassure everyone, any compliance buyer in the EU at the time couldn't use CER solely as a way of meeting their compliance. They did have to reduce their own emissions. Um, they did have to buy. They had, did have to make sure that whatever emissions they did emit, they had to have enough EU allowances to cover it. And for what they could was permissible, they could also use ERs. Right, because but, the the EU ETS constrained the amount that could be emitted over time, and then ratcheted up over time. But it didn't say, oh, you're not allowed to emit anything. Correct. Exactly. 
So what you do is it's based on historical emissions. So they say that I actually have forgotten how they set the cap, but it would say like, okay, from 2005 levels, you know, it starts off in this year as a reduction of that. And each year they reduce what we call the overall cap. And the cap represents the total amount of emissions that the entire, all the facilities that are under the EUTS are allowed to admit. Yeah. Think about it. Year one, let's say it's 100 million tons. In year two, it will be 95 million tons. In year three, it'll be 90. If you understand that over time, those same facilities have less and less allowances that they can use. And so you create a market where they are emitting a certain amount of emissions. They have now less allowances. And so the price of the EUA, what's called the EU allowance, goes yeah. up because there's not enough, there was meant to be not enough allowances uh, to cover demand. Right. But that would have been under a scenario in which the economic recession happened. And so since the cap is based on historical uh, emissions, uh, and because of the economic recession, industrial output was much less, the amount of emissions associated reduced below the historical, there ended up being, by 2010, enough allowances cover emissions. But prior to that, there wasn't. And in 2006, you even had, um, I think, EUAs were trading above 25. It was going into the 30s, 30 euros per ton. You know, the state and trends of the carbon market reports that are done by the World Bank, if you read it during those years, you were getting notions that uh, different EU facilities were considering to invest into capital intensive projects. Uh, what I mean by that is we're considering how do I reduce my own emissions? And they were thinking of buying more expensive but more efficient equipment as a way to reduce their carbon price and their carbon costs. In that exact moment, prior to crisis, it seemed like it was working or about to work very effectively. Exactly. The EU ETS was working very effectively. It was setting a EUA price. And at the same time, because the EUA price was so high, you really saw um, the CDM market and a lot of investments into developing projects that would qualify for the CDM. And there was a lot of interest, a lot of activities around the world. China and India and Brazil were by far the biggest uh, locations in which these projects were occurring. Admittedly, in China, it was industrial gases that really benefited from this. Like uh, Industrial gases are uh, facilities that emit, uh, it's normally like a, they have a high global warming potential. Right. And so just reducing that one ton of that high global warming potential, like HFCs or methane or N2Os, um, just reducing emissions from that, one ton of those emissions were the equivalent of thousands of greenhouse gas, I mean, carbon dioxide equivalents. And every offset credit is measured in carbon dioxide equivalent. And right. so you could get a high volume a big bang for the buck. Now there was a there was some research that came out regarding that uh, in China the investments that said great so the CDM did this but this was actually should have been covered by the Montreal Protocol which was an earlier agreement through the, the United Nations uh, I guess it was the environmental program. Um, okay. to, maybe you could just speak to that for just briefly like uh, 30 seconds or so. So in that case uh Yes, uh, the Montreal Protocol actually covered CFCs. Uh, HFC 23 was one of the industrial gases that they're talking about. That was actually meant to um, 
replace CFCs as an ozone-depleting substance, but what they found out was it actually had a high global warming potential when it comes to climate change. Uh -huh. So then they started phasing that out. But um, one thing, a lot of people get a lot of criticism, give a lot of criticism on industrial gases. What I found was very interesting and something that is less known is, is that we qualify um, a project as being additional in terms of it needed the carbon finance, the sale of the offset credit to make sure that this project occurs, so the emission reduction occurs. Right. And a lot of people really do favor renewable energies for that reason, because you know their carbon revenues will then be invested into a more innovative technology. Right. Now, the thing that was interesting, at least in China, and this I'll say is more uh, listening to different people who worked in China, and what they made as an observation was that um, because the Chinese uh, industrial policy was such that it really supported wind projects, that even when, uh, so just a quick aside, the C, when the economic recession happened, C, CDM credits, the price of that crashed, and they went very low. So during the time that these carbon financing, you know, the revenues from that were meant to finance these projects, Interestingly enough, even at incredibly low prices, prices where these wind projects weren't meant to be run or should have been canceled, they still occurred. Right. So in some ways, you can say these projects were not additional. On the other hand, when it came to industrial gases in China, without that carbon finance, the facilities just allowed for these industrial gases to go. So they didn't have the carbon finance. They didn't run the equipment that would essentially reduce these industrial gases. And uh, interestingly, it actually shows the carbon finance was necessary and proves additionality of industrial gases. And this is counterfactual to what most people who think about industrial gas projects and carbon financing of it. They think it's just a cheap project that produces a lot of volume. But what we don't seem to appreciate is, is that actually that carbon finance was necessary to make sure those emission reductions occurred. Without that, um, yeah, we they let a lot of gases out into the atmosphere. So, uh, yeah, this is on the line of this. Maybe we could trace that through into Paris 2015. And and I'll just note real quickly, it's funny that prior to the start of the podcast, you said uh, this is not really your expertise, emissions and additionality, but it seems like you know quite a bit about it. Um, but, yeah, maybe we could just uh, start from Paris 2015, since that's all the... Um, the media is speaking about now, and uh, to trace that up into what, what we're supposed to achieve, hypothetically, at the end of this year, in uh, the UK is hosting the the Conference of Parties. Mm -hmm. So, actually, this 2020 is the critical year in which countries have uh, to submit what we call nationally determined contributions and updated nationally determined contributions. So any country that wanted to sign up for Paris Agreement in 2015 actually had to submit a plan on how they were going to address uh, their greenhouse gases. How were they going to mitigate it? And then also, if there were any potential effects in their country to climate change, how they were going to adapt to it. So, And the country actually was free to determine what kinds of, if they want to put a quantitative target, a qualitative target, different types of policies, they were actually free on what could be submitted in 2015. Right. Now, in 2020, what 
it was great in 2015 not to have a harmonized um, submission because it actually gave countries a sense of, um, I think you needed that flexibility for 2015 to get a global agreement. If you think about it, there are about over 184, about over 180 parties right. who have submitted plans. Now, in 20, what makes it difficult though is how do we then measure global action? If you were to add up all these plans, but they're so different, even the plans that have targets, quantitative targets, they have, they're addressing different things, they have different timelines, they have different numbers, they are, may not be addressing all the greenhouse gases, they could be addressing only certain ones, um, they may have economy-wide targets, or they may have sector-specific targets. So yeah, it's, it's almost like having a, trying to look at 180 companies and they're each in their own sector. Yeah. Right. And they have very different ways in which they report it. So how do you then measure global action, particularly because the Paris Agreement itself has a global goal of ensuring that emissions reduce um, to avoid a two-degree increase in global temperatures by the end of this century and make all efforts to do 1.5. Right. And what that would roughly translate into is halving, halving 2016 by 2030, and then um, also ensuring it's net zero by 2050, just to meet the two degree target, or 1.5 to two degree target. And right. so if you think about that, okay, I know at the global level what I need to meet, but how do I add up all these different countries' plans in a way that I can actually measure progress against the global targets? So this is what this year, countries, there's trying to, there's been a lot of efforts in harmonizing how countries report their NDCs, still giving them leeway on, it, obviously every country is encouraged to increase their ambition. Part, developed countries are meant to increase their ambition, developing countries have the option to, as part of recognizing that developing countries uh, historically have not contributed to the point we're at on climate change. but. Right. You know, there's a lot of efforts into making sure all countries update their plans in a way that also is a lot more harmonized to reporting rules. But, um, and, and then the other part of it is, once we understand what countries are willing to do, seeing what qualifies for international carbon finance under what is called Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And this has been particularly uh, hard fought in international negotiations. Right, and I believe this at the end of this last year, that was the main point that was under contention and, and resulted in really no agreement at the end of 2019 in terms of the Conference of Parties with the Framework Convention on Climate Change. Yes, I mean, there are different parts of Article 6 that have some agreement or not, but the key contention really is this going back to this notion of environmental integrity, making sure that if you were to do a transfer of credits, so you have international carbon finance that allows one country to buy credits from another country, and then that country, by buying credits from the other country, you essentially reduce your own emissions, so you offset your own emissions. Now, it was different under the Kyoto Protocol, because of the Kyoto Protocol, only developed countries were required to reduce their emissions. Under the Paris Agreement, every country has some sort of obligation to reducing their emissions, and this will be shown under their NDC targets. Now, every country is obligated to meet their NDC targets. And we have to make sure that 
if you, let's say, uh, country A buys country B's credits, so we call it the buyer country, and country B is where the actual emission reduction occurred, and they could sell the emission reductions to country A, but they would have to make sure, the seller country would have to make sure that their greenhouse gas accounting system, their registry, reflects that they no longer have done the emission reduction in their own country. So it, it only is reflected in the buyer country's registry. Right, so, so there's no double counting, as the, they call it, right? double counting. Mm. If both countries claim the same emission reduction occurred and reflects within their registries, and these registries then reflect how much emissions occur in the country, it also reflects whether or not then they've met the IPC target. If both emission reductions are reflected in both countries' registries, that's called double counting. And that essentially would inflate the numbers and it undermines the environmental integrity of the Paris Agreement. And so this has been the contention because uh, amongst countries on how to avoid double counting, where certain countries, in this case, it really is uh, Brazil, India, China, who want certain provisions to be put in place that they are allowed to also count the credit within their registry. And I know there has been a lot of negotiations, not just in Madrid, but in the run-up to Madrid. We meet the international climate negotiators constantly, and you can see how much they're trying to come up with some sort of solution that breaks this negotiations deadlock. But essentially, the backstop is we cannot, and this is coming out as the backstop, no transfer should ever lead to global emissions increasing, that you have these double counts. And so I really do hope that the UK team is able to somehow, through the diplomatic ties, through coming out with different proposals, actually break this deadlock. It's also an important point because you want the faith to be built in this system. And if things like this are occurring, that might pull the bottom right out. People are not going to believe it. Companies will not believe it. And then we're left with nothing in the end. Accounting, generally, is the most important thing. So there's always, regardless of uh, in the what we call compliance markets, this is international compliance markets like Article 6 or CBM and UETS, or even voluntary markets. We've learned a lot from the past 20 years of offsetting to know that the governance processes need to be in place to ensure the integrity of the system, to ensure that you can prove that emission reduction is the result of either avoided emissions or sequestered emissions. You have to be able to prove that. And what I think people don't fully appreciate is the amount of players that ensure that environmental integrity of credits are there. Part of the reason why, it's not to say that there aren't bad apples out there, but that's where you have to understand the entire offset governance and recognize who are the, what we call standards, who issue certificates and basically they govern whether or not this emission reduction um, is representative of an actual emission this offset governance, that's quite a new term. I think it's, uh, I've heard it just several times before. And and so you have sort of these private or public-private actors that, I suppose, they measure and then they disseminate these metrics regarding greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, absolutely. So ultimately, you want, if you're buying an offset credit, you want to make sure that that credit is representative of an avoided ton of CO2 or a actual sequestered ton. Now, how do you know that? One thing is you look at the standard in which this is certified under. So these standards are the top ones, I would say, are gold standard. The top international ones are gold standard and FERA, or the 
verified carbon. It's called E. It's called gold standard. At some point, I'm sure they'll go up to platinum standard, but for now, it's called the gold standard. Yeah. And then there's BCS. They are, and there's also the clean development mechanism. So even that's transferred to the voluntary market after the EUTS stopped buying the CDF credits. So here are your three top standards. They have rules under which they determine whether an emission reduction occurs. These rules can be dependent on what types of projects they're willing to certify. And they also are on how... Uh, who's involved So within that. So for example, let's say South Pole, the company I want to, wants to certify emission reductions from a landfill site. And so what you do is we recognize which standard will do that. So in this case, it would be BCS or the CDM. And then we say, okay, we go through their processes and we fill out the documents. Um, then there's something called a validator. It's an independent party who knows the standards, rules, and also uh, knows the, what we call methodologies. These are basically uh, the types of projects that can be certified and the, the rules under which it can be certified under. And so they check our documentation to make sure it's right, and they also will check the project. And right. then they say, okay, gold standard, you can register this. But registry doesn't mean that's the first step of uh, passing it. After that, you actually have to prove that emission reductions occur. You get this independent verifier to actually monitor and verify that emission reductions have occurred from your project. And then they go back to the standard and the standard agrees and issues credits. So there is a lot of transparency and accountability uh, ensured within offset governance to prove that. Now, the important thing is to pick standards that actually have very stringent criteria. And the top ones are the ones I discussed. Of course, this means that there's going to be delays, there's risks, but it's all part of what we've seen is in order to ensure the environmental integrity of the system, in order to prove to outsiders that this is a legitimate way of financing emission reductions in countries, you do actually need that stringency there. You do, do need to have governance processes in place that demand that kind of thing. What is more germane to your prior research as well as uh, your current activities with South Pole are sort of this green growth and business opportunities and, and what are corporates doing. So stepping away from the national level and what Paris did was national determined contributions, the corporate level, which could they could be national companies, domestic companies, or they could be multinational corporations. The national determined contributions, and and then step more into this green growth and sustainability at the corporate level, which I guess is exactly your expertise at South Pole, and is what you've done quite a bit of research on in the past. A lot of my research with uh, and also my work in South Pole is to help one governments to set up policies or carbon pricing policies, or even to think about but they have to set up in terms of climate policy to be adherent to NDCs. So that, or how can you set up policies to benefit from international carbon finance? So that is what I do on one side when I work with governments and make sure that they adhere to those rules that go with Paris to make sure that they are in line, but also helping companies understand carbon pricing and climate policies as a way of then understanding how they can reduce their carbon costs, either by reducing their own emissions or uh, buying offsets for those emissions that cannot be avoided. It's what we call a climate journey. We identify what you can. First, South Pole as a company helps companies identify where their emissions are occurring 
well, both within their operations, but also from their suppliers, so associated emissions from their suppliers, but also associated emissions from their products. So it's not something that they directly control, but they have some effect on. Is that the green value chain or the sort of global green value chain? I would chain? call it, the industry calls it scope one, two, and three emissions. So scope one is directly emissions from your own facilities. Scope mm-hmm. two is what's combusted due to indirect consumption. So electricity is a good example. You're buying electricity and the emissions associated from where you buy electricity from the power plant. So even though it happens at the power plant, your decision to consume a certain amount of electricity then is reflected. And then uh, scope three is the emissions associated with, let's say you you know, have different inputs and you get it from your suppliers. Now your suppliers are the ones where the emissions occur, but it's your choice to buy, buy certain goods from your suppliers. Also from another way is scope three is your own product. Now, again, you've produced it. The emissions associated with the production is within your scope one emissions. But when your consumer combusts it or uses it, it also has emissions. So a good example of that is an oil company. The, The emissions from flaring and transporting oil is their emissions. But scope three emissions are associated with your customer combusting the like the fuel in their cars. So we help assess a company's scope one, two, and three emissions. And then uh, we think of, okay, if more policies come in place, or if you want to be aligned to make sure that you're aligned to science-based targets. And so when we say science-based targets, aligned to reducing your emissions so that it's in line with going um, on a 1.5 or 2 degree path. So in those cases, how do you make sure, what are the carbon costs of that? And that's called transition risk. So our company also helps with assessing physical risk, like how exposed is your company, your facilities to certain climate catastrophes occurring? What would be the cost associated with that? So when you're thinking of risks, we help companies assess that. And going back to your original question of why are we're suddenly seeing a lot of businesses come out with science-based targets, coming out with net zero targets really been in the past two years and it, we're picking up a lot of business with that because South Pole as a company is about providing climate solutions for all or climate action for all and we're definitely seeing corporates moving across all kinds of sectors from the fashion industry to agri-food industry to oil companies we're seeing this kind of move to airlines uh, we're really seeing it now thanks to COVID I'm concerned about what's going to happen with the transport sector and their ability to address climate action generally we're seeing prior to COVID a lot of uh, action occurring right and the three main reasons i would say or i in reflecting on it the first one is social license to operate you know i've been advocating for governments and businesses to do something about climate change but it really has been Greta Thunberg and extinction rebellion who have really moved the dial on getting to start a conversation that this has become a lot more mainstream as a top thing and they are demanding that both governments and businesses have a social license to operate. And it's really interesting to see it just opening up a national consciousness. And then uh, one of the things to summarize is then peer dynamics, which is you're starting to see companies, because there's a social license to operate, they also, some, you, you'll find it with companies that have this kind of peer dynamic where they have a close competitor that is almost synonymous to them or they're known as their main rival. So Pepsi and Coca-Cola are good examples of this. You're seeing in the fashion industry, different fashion label houses, and even like a big French conglomerate for fashion called Caring, they've come out with net zero targets. And what you're seeing is, is that when one rival sets a big target, 
then the other rivals are almost under pressure to match them or go past them. They can't match them because then they have to go past them. We're seeing this with Shell announcing the $300 million fund to invest into nature-based solutions. And now this year, BP has said they will be net zero by 2050. And this is one of the first things their new CEO did. Yeah. And so you're really seeing that kind of pure dynamic competitive effect, which is great for us because <laughs> regardless of whatever the reason is, it is great to see companies moving forward. But the last reason I would say is companies are really recognizing that they are exposed to climate risk. And it goes back into the three risks that I'm talking about too, like I mentioned. One is companies recognize that they could have real physical risks. And even you can see this in the World Economic Forum when they you know, survey CEOs and business leaders, the top thing that comes out is climate risk. And along with that is short-term weather shocks, long-term temperature increases, different things. They recognize that they are exposed, their facilities are exposed to damage that will be very costly to recover, disrupt supply chains, will disrupt operations, and will become more frequent and it could become more intense. Uh, also in the long-term, you know, especially agro-food companies, I would imagine they would be concerned with how temperature changes then affect the costs of getting their supply of inputs. So when you really think about it, you're seeing that kind of movement of they want to assess actually their physical risk. Another thing they have to assess is as more and more stringent climate policies come in place, and particularly carbon pricing policies come in place, what are their carbon costs going to be? Is it big enough that they should actually reduce their one, two, and three emissions as a way of reducing those costs? And it's not just carbon pricing. It could be targets, renewable energy, energy efficiency targets. What are the costs of actually complying to more stringent policies across the board? And the last one is litigation. Hmm. More and more companies are being aware that they're going to get litigated. We're seeing this while this is primarily and majority is in the U.S. And ironically, more and more since the Trump administration, there's a lot more litigation cases either against governments or companies to ensure they uphold to their they account for their emissions. But it's also happening globally. And this notion, and it actually really helped. There was a famous article called uh, by David Heady that attributed a top global historical emissions over time to 100 companies. And this notion of attribution of emissions to specific companies and the responsibility to it, and particularly if they knew about it. Mm -hmm. So you not only have to attribute that companies have emitted a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which has contributed to now climate change, but two, that they knew about it. And so I believe it was last year where Senator Cortez, there's a kind of a viral video um, that she's doing a public hearing and it's with Exxon Mobil modelers from the 1980s. And the scientist really says, yeah, we're excellent modelers. We could show that greenhouse gases were increasing. What would happen? So it shows, I, I'm pretty sure it was ExxonMobil, but... Yeah, they, they knew about it, right? And then, then there was a case that opened up that, that I think it was against. Exactly. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting point you had, going back a little bit, about the competitiveness between companies. And then sort of once we're able to, to extrapolate the same measurements about companies emitting emissions or doing this, uh, putting money into the green economy or so forth, then we're able to compare and sort of 
blame and shame somewhat. And, and I think there's, a, there's an interesting connection between the theoretical impetus for Paris 2015, where you have not at the company level, you have it at the country level, sort of once we're able to correctly measure and, co- and make these commensurable, then we can have some sort of competition, perhaps. And then as one more point to that, we have seen, I think, in the past 10, 20, 30 years, quite a lot of competition in this green economy. And, and we might only hope that, that that creates more innovation and more movement towards a, a green transition. Well, I'll say that in thinking about it, we have a lot of big global companies that have to reconcile many different countries' policies to determine what they do. And what we're seeing is, is at the global level, I think some companies are just recognizing more with CDP. So CDP and the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, uh, they have to kind of have a unified reporting measure across all their operations around the world. And so for them, it's this kind of standardization of reporting that is also making them a lot more accountable. And this actually goes into that kind of transparency, going back to the peer dynamic effect, is is that when you have ratings agencies, something like that rates you according to how transparent you are. But something like CDP also has rates you on how much you're addressing your climate risk. And you want to be on CDP's top 100 list. And it's amazing how rankings can move companies very quickly. I know when I was working at Grantham Research Institute, they have something called Transitions Pathway Initiative, and they have a methodology to not only measure the management quality, how are companies, are they putting the policies in place and the governance processes in place to actually address climate, but and then based on what they say they're going to do, to what extent that will actually reduce their emissions that are aligned to the Paris targets. So that's a very interesting way of putting it, and they then, based on that, rank companies according to the management quality and then the associated emissions from their goods in the future. So what is their climate risk? And when that list comes out and that ranking comes out in each sector, so they've done it for most the largest publicly traded companies in the most major carbon intensive sectors. And it is very interesting. The lead person on that you know, says he's constantly with companies who are fighting to say they have to have a higher rank. And part of it is also that they feel that they've you know, like they see their competitors on that list too. So those kind of secure (laughs) dynamics, one, transparency, standardization of reporting, a way in which you can rank companies according to how much they're doing in a way that is comparable Mm -hmm. is actually probably very exciting to create this kind of competitive dynamics. Just stay on the CDP for, for, for one second, because I, like you, I'm sure, have sort of unpacked that data, the Carbon Disclosure Project data, and uh, even though they do have that top 100, which is quite nice and important for companies, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to, to sort of extrapolate a lot from there, aside from just, okay, this company this company has said this is what they did and that they intend to do, and it's starting to align emissions. Now, I could be wrong, or it could be just it takes a few more years, because it's quite new. Well, new meaning 2011, 12, 13. 2006. Yeah. Even thinking about something like CDP, it was one of the first companies I know who, well, CDP was started by with investors asking for CDP to be created because they wanted to start assessing the climate or greenhouse gases or in the environmental costs of different companies that they were investing into. And with that backing, CDP was created. And when it was first created, you couldn't really 
get that many companies to submit. And so CDP's questionnaires, so the way CDP works is it sends out questionnaires to companies, they fill it out, they send them back to CDP. In the beginning, it was very open, very qualitative. And over time, once you got this buy-in, but particularly once you got investors pushing company to report the results to CDP and to fill out those questionnaires, you know, it creates the momentum of creating comparability. So they've come a long way since 2006. But I'll admit, I actually haven't looked into many of the reports because you do have to get the subscription. So what is publicly available, I've seen. Um, but I do, I have team members who have to submit CDP reports for companies. So that's some of our clients. We help with their CDP reporting. And it does get more rigorous over time. Does it allow for that kind of comparability? I'll, I'll ask my colleagues. <laughs> yeah, with my truncated data set, 2014 to till now, I believe I have, it was just quite difficult for me to compare more than, you know, a small subset of, of companies just because some will report in this year, some will not, some will report, you know, 100%. In fact, I saw one article that said only nine companies fully reported everything that was asked for. Exactly. But it's a start and these things take a long time because th this is something that human center has done before. So finance and, and currencies and this and that, this has been going on for hundreds of years between countries. You know, climate accounting is it's a new thing for everybody. So yeah. you know, we have to have, we have exactly. to be somehow somewhat patient. I think. Yeah, I mean, one there's a couple of things going on here. One is actually those institutions that help that require reporting to occur and need to make standards, uh, standardized reporting, but they are as beholden to what data is out there and how willing companies are to provide that data. Two, the companies themselves probably don't know how to measure this data. Right. So what we call a monitoring, reporting, and verification system, this is happening both within companies, their ability to measure, monitor, report, to get those systems in place, get the people in place to measure this. You know, you can have a whole bunch of accountants who are concerned with financial then you're going to have to have set up environment departments if you haven't had it that actually measure this consistently over time in a way that can then um, be standardized and put into who you need to report to either if it's voluntarily with CDP or more and more with governments um, who would require that as part of their overall MRV system that comes with Paris. So this takes a long time. I know we had worked um, in Jordan to help facilitate this process of thinking about uh, putting in MRV systems. And, and you can really see at the starting level for countries where they're at, you know, yes, there's the environment ministry, but they have to, you know, the transport ministry has to do this. Buildings have to do this. All these other agriculture, it's not one singular ministry that's responsible for everything. And they need to get the buy-in for a lot of stakeholders to just do something as, as simple as measure, report, and verify these emissions are occurring. You know, it's not a simple process at all. And uh, you don't have a currency or like units like money to be able to monitor its transfer. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it will take a while, but it's also amazing the leaps and bounds that have occurred in a short period of time because there's so much pressure to do it. And there's some very innovative systems coming in place to be able to do that. So I'm, I'm really excited with the kinds of things Apple is doing in order to help more easily measure, monitor, and report, how you can automate it, how AI is getting into this, how big data is going into this, even blockchain. So it's like a lot of those things are being applied into the environmental sector to provide
provide the solution. So we could, you know, there's governance processes and then there's just systems in place to get that data together. Right, and that's an interesting thing to pull out of there, this blockchain and AI as a system of governments in order to not just qualify the data and, and run some data analysis, but in order to um, help account for all these transactions that will have to occur, not just the emissions, but as well um, transferring of renewable energy and credits for renewables and, and this sort of thing. So, Renewable energy is a lot easier because it has, you know, you can measure a kilowatt hour of, of electricity and so and you know where it comes from. That's a lot easier. And yes, there could be systems in place for that. What's yeah. a lot harder is um, carbon because it's <laughs> it's either, you know, you're talking about many different places, you're putting an input, it's not an easy thing to measure. Like, you know, from your building, do we know just looking at a building where the emissions are coming from, what are the different sources for it in terms of heating and electricity? Um, but then it's not heating and electricity. You can measure, you know, the kilowatt hours of electricity, but then you have to go back into the source of saying, okay, but how much carbon dioxide comes from this kilowatt hour? Right. That becomes harder. Um, measuring different projects and seeing, you know, from different facilities, it's it's not as obvious. So you have to put input calculations into this kind of calculator. But like I said, we are seeing that there's innovations in this place to make it easier for companies to measure. Um, but then it also needs standardization on the reporting at the country level when it comes to the Paris Agreement, and there's been a lot of strides to ensure that happens. But this goes back to this term of capacity building, I was saying, which is that you suddenly realize all the different things that different parts of government, different companies need, and different parts of companies need to be able to do something as simple as measure their emissions and to be able to put it into Excel sheets <laughs> that they can report to. That's it for this episode. Hope you can join us next week. A special shout out to our sponsor. This podcast and all episodes have gotten 100% funding from the Dean's Seed Funding for Strategic Initiatives at UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences. It is co-hosted by UCL's Global Governance Institute and UCL's Anthropology Institute. And a very special thanks to our producer, Tavo Carbone, who has also created the music for this and all episodes. If you're interested in hearing more of Tavo Carbone music, you can find him at tavocarbonemusic.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to reach out to me, ask me any questions, please do email me at k.herman.com at ucl.ac.edu.